we are truly in the presence of God. I wonder if you can feel that this morning. I think he's almost visceral in our midst, and we couldn't have sung more appropriate words than we just did for the sermon we're about to go into, that it was finished upon the cross. Christ the Son has died, has risen, that we might be free indeed, and we are free indeed. This is the most glorious reality in the universe and it is making us new. It is making us new this morning. Well, we're in Genesis 15 this morning. Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. The second week in a row we find ourselves in this chapter. And as I said last week, this chapter is a pivot point in the journey of Abraham. Many things change for Abram as a result of the events in this chapter. Other things grow in clarity, gain greater clarity because of this chapter. And so this chapter may be the most important chapter in the journey of Abram. I think chapter 22, where Abram nearly sacrifices his son Isaac, ranks up there as well. But last week in verses 1 through 6, we saw God reveal himself to Abram as his shield, as Jehovah Magan. Remember that title, Jehovah Magan, meaning I am your shield. The name of God is itself a promise. A promise to protect and a promise to reward. And centuries later, centuries after this encounter with Abram, David takes up the same theme. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my Salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my rock, my refuge is God. Again, it's so appropriate that we just sang, I will wait for you. And here David is declaring in Psalm 62, he's declaring that God is his refuge, or you could say shield. God is his salvation and his glory, our reward forever. God's protect, God is our protection and our reward. He is Jehovah Magan for his people. And though his name is itself a promise, God continues to make promises to Abram. And so after asking Abram to count the innumerable, innumerable stars in the skies, an impossible task, he promises Abram that he will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, innumerable offspring. And then, after that declaration, something amazing happens in chapter 15. Look at that verse again, chapter 15, verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It is a stunning verse. Completely apart from any acts of obedience or courage or success or achievement, apart from all of that, God declares Abram to be righteous. God determined it. And Abram is counted righteous by faith. Faith alone. It is in faith alone that God counts Abram righteous. Faith alone, sola fide. 
And then there's this very, the very act of calling a sinful man righteous is itself an act of grace. Because Abram didn't deserve that. He was not a righteous man on his own. It was purely by God counting him righteous that Abram becomes righteous. This is grace, sola gratia, faith alone through grace alone. And the whole scene is, is not meant to glorify Abram as if he's some magnificent person. No, this is meant to glorify the God who gives grace to call sinners righteous. Sola Dea Gloria. Faith alone, through grace alone, for the glory of God alone. The God who counts sinners righteous, Jehovah Magan. And even though we saw we saw Christ through last week's text, we will see Jesus even more loudly, more profoundly in this week's text. Because when God makes further promises and when he cuts covenant with Abram, we can perceive that it is Christ alone who secures covenant for us. It is Christ alone who brings us into the righteousness of God. Sola Cristo. Christ alone. There is no other. It is good that we have Scripture to show us these things. Only through Scripture can we see the glories of God. Today, as we look at this, I want you to see three layers in the text. This is a deeply layered text. More layers than I'm going to uncover today. But the first layer I want you to see is the layer that is the context of Abram. What's going on in his world? What's informing the events that are happening? And, and what is he doing? And what's happening? And then the second layer will be the layer of the exodus. When God frees Israel from captivity in Egypt and, well, eventually brings them to the promised land. And then the third layer, layer that we will see is the layer of covenant in Christ. Let's read, let's read this now, starting in Genesis fifteen seven. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, 
the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Pray with me. We are not worthy, Father, even to behold these words. How can we stand before the glories of heaven? And then here, here they are, before our eyes. Help us, God, to see them. That these glories would, would come alive in our souls. That we would not, not be mere observers, sitting at a distance, pretending. But that you would draw us in. Draw us in and do a mighty work in our hearts, in our midst. We thank you for these words. And I'm praying in Christ's name. Amen. Remember chapter 14. If you turn back there and you look at verses 19 and verses 22, you see God being referred to as the possessor of heaven and earth. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15, which is part 1 of the chapter, God is making promises regarding the heavens, and he's using the stars as a symbol to promise innumerable descendants. Now, just a real quick parenthesis. Um, in a variety of ways, stars and various other heavenly bodies, they come to symbolize the people of God, and they become to symbolize nations and rulers all throughout the Bible. You'll see stars being used to symbolize people. We saw this occur many times when we were going through the book of Revelation, if you remember. There we also saw the land or the earth play a significant symbolic role. And so here in Genesis 15, the stars are used to symbolize the innumerable descendants of Abraham. Of Abram. And then in verse 7, we enter into part 2 of chapter 15, where God, possessor of heaven and earth, makes promises regarding the land. Look at verse 7. He even links his identity with the earth. He's essentially saying, I am the Lord who brought you to this land and promised you this land. You want to know who I am? I brought you to this land. I promised you this land. See how God defines himself at the beginning of both parts. Ah, I hate that I need this. God defines himself at the beginning of both parts. Part one, I am your shield and your reward. That's in verse seven. Or in, in verse one, I'm sorry. And then in verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you to give you the land. And then the very next thing that happens after God defines himself is that Abram, in faith, he asks for a guarantee. Look at that in verse 8. But he said, Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, possess the land? Well, just as we saw last week, Abram isn't doubting God. He's not, he's not complaining. It's actually Abram taking God seriously. Placing responsibility on God to fulfill the promise. I, I believe you, God. It's like, I believe you, God. Help my own belief. 
And God then answers Abram with this covenantal ceremony, this ratification of a covenant that is deeply profound and layered and shocking, and we're going to work through the ceremony three times. And I've already told you these three layers. First, we're going to be looking at the immediate context of Abram, Abram's day and the significance of, of the various symbols we're seeing. We're going next to see a layer that re- relates to Moses and the Exodus. And then third is this layer that, that absolutely gloriously foreshadows covenant in Christ. All right, look, look at verse 9 now. God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Abram's context first. Abram gathers these five different animals. A heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Just as God has requested, three years old being the Jewish idea of the prime of an animal's life. And then he brings a turtle dove and a pigeon. And a turtle dove is really just a a subspecies of a pigeon. So it's two pigeons, basically. One is more pure than the other, according to the law, as will be found out later. So Abram gathers these, and then... In this super bizarre move, he cuts the animals in half. God doesn't ask him to cut the animals in half. He just does it. Imagine that. Hey, bring me some animals. And then he brings them and cuts them in half. I think you'd be disappointed. Except except that that's just me talking. (laughs) It seems as if this is what God wanted to happen with the animals. He wanted these animals to be cut in half because behind the text, In the historical context of Abram, there is this ancient ceremony. A ceremony Abram is already familiar with. A a ceremony that seems to originate in Mesopotamia, the land of Babylon where Abram is from. And it appears that these five animals in particular signal to Abram that God is going to initiate a ceremony. So he knows just what to do. It's a ceremony of covenant. He gathers the animals and he cuts them in half. So in this ancient ceremony, in this ancient ritual, two people have agreed to enter into some kind of covenant with one another. And they make promises that are binding. And then to make it official, to to ratify that covenant, they perform this very ceremony, this symbolic act. So there's an image here of animals cut in half. Not, not width-wise, so that you have a top and bottom, but length-wise, the animals are cut in half. And their pieces are used to make a pathway. One half of the heifer on the right, the other half of the heifer on the left, same with the goat. And the ram, not cut in half, or the turtle dove and pigeon, just eat, one of them is placed on each side. So these preparations have been made maybe looking something like this. And then what happens next is that the two parties making covenant with one another walk through the center, walk, walk on the blood through the middle. And this whole bloody scene, 
as visceral as it is, is meant to communicate, if I break covenant, may I be like these animals. May my blood flow like theirs. May my fate be their fate if I break covenant with you. The blood and the death and the evisceration, the gore of it, it was intentionally gruesome. It was to be awful to look at, meant to represent the severity and the gravity of breaking a covenant bond. Now, to show you I'm not just making this up, there's another place in Scripture where the exact same ceremony is referenced in Jeremiah chapter 34. Listen to this. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You see, that's the same ceremony. So we're seeing in Genesis 15, the people of the land, as they're called, the people of the land, the people of Israel, they passed themselves between the pieces and then they violate the very covenant they made. They actually made a covenant with God to release their slaves, but then they didn't. Therefore, in judgment for that covenant violation, God says they will become like the animals, and they certainly did because Babylon slaughtered them. Look at verse 12. The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The sun was going down. So following the flow in Genesis 15, this seems to indicate that this is the night after he looked at the stars, was promised innumerable descendants. But on this night, God puts Abram into this deep sleep. Do you remember anybody else that God put into a deep sleep? There's one person before this, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. When he did this, God used a portion of Adam's body to create a wife. And Adam and his wife Eve were together to rule the earth and subdue it. Here, God puts Abram into a deep sleep. And he will use a portion of his body to create offspring. And the offspring will rule and subdue We'll let that hang. Both scenes are acts of creation. God is creating something. In Genesis 2, God created Eden and a paradise. He created everything. He creates man and woman. And they are to rule over this glorious paradise. And then the very next chapter, they fall, they sin, and paradise is lost. And all creation is subjected to futility. Now in Genesis 15, 
God's going to win it back. He has this plan to win it back. And he creates this covenantal process through which to restore paradise. He will restore paradise. Look at verses 13 through 16 now. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 13, God says, no for certain. It's a response for Abram's, how am I to know? In verse 8. So God assures Abram with a promise. And the promise has a very gloomy beginning. You see that? I want you to see how this relates to Abram's life. So just as Abram went down to Egypt, so will his descendants go down to Egypt. Just as Sarah, his wife, became a slave to Pharaoh, so will Abram's descendants become a slave to Pharaoh. Their afflictions, though, will last 400 years. But after that time... Judgment shall come upon Egypt. Abram's offspring will be released, just like judgment came upon Pharaoh's household, and Sarai was released from his harem. Then Abram and Sarah left Egypt with great possessions, it says. So will Abram's offspring leave Egypt with great possessions. So God is laying before Abram's eyes, his plan for the centuries before him. He's showing Abram what will later be called the Exodus. And yet Abram's going to see none of it. He will live long, but he will die before any of this comes to pass. He can know for certain. That's how God starts this. You can know for certain. What? That God will fulfill his promises? But his promises are going to extend beyond any single person's lifespan. And so we begin to learn something very important about how God works here. Boy, this is important for us to understand. We see how God works here. And scripture testifies to this all over the place. That God delights to work in long process. Slow and steady. Far beyond the scope of any individual life. Why does he do that? Because I want what I want right now. Well, this way, no man can claim the glory, but only the eternal God. And this way, God's people must depend on him through faith, rather than trust in what we can accomplish, what we can get done. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we live in a dangerous age. I don't know if you you realize this. If we are not careful, consumerism turns us into addicts. We get addicted to instant pleasure. And this becomes a slow-acting poison within us with a compounding effect, and it will kill us. People of God, we need to learn what it is to be content. To be joyfully patient. To live with delay. That is a grace to us. 
for reasons I've already mentioned, but for another, which we see in 2 Peter, verses, verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. <laughs> Why is God slow to fulfill his promises? Because he's patient towards you. I want God to act. I want him to act all the time in all kinds of different ways. And you know what? I should pray that he, that he does. I should be giving those things to him and say, God, do, do it. Act. I, I want you to move in this particular way. Would you do it, Father? But if that desire that is in me, and it's not bad, but it's there, if that desire becomes discontent, if it becomes bitterness, we think God is moving too slowly, and we're in danger of thinking that we know better than God. We're in danger of placing ourselves in the position of God. Do you know what that's called? Self-righteousness. We need to trust that God is doing something so much bigger than your life, so much bigger than your demands, so much bigger than your ability to scope the world around you. He is doing something so much bigger. We just sang that song, I will wait for you. Do you mean it? God's gradually unfolding plans and his slowly fulfilled promises, they extend as an opportunity to all people that that all people would have the opportunity to repent. God, as Scripture attests, God's promises, they are not slow. They are a mercy. They are grace. And his timing is perfect. It's at the exact right time. And we see this reflected in our passage today so clearly as God gives the land to the Amorites for an additional 400 years. The term Amorites here is just being used uh, as a generic term for all the wicked people living in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. And they were incredibly wicked. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, how wicked they are. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you should not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or, source, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. All but one of the practices listed in that passage could fall into the category of witchcraft. So the Amorites practice witchcraft and they sacrifice their children, burning them alive as an offering to their gods. God gave them 400 years to repent of this, to turn away. And instead, it only seems to have intensified. 400 years and then their evils will end. Their evils are complete, and judgment will come. 
while Abram was deep in his sleep, God made these promises. Abram's very numerous offspring will inherit that land. They will sanctify it, cleanse it from its wickedness. Notice, though, in this ceremony, there are two parties present. There's God and and there's Abram. But Abram makes no promises. Only God makes promises. Abram is silent. He's asleep. It's as if God was preventing him from speaking. Even still, God takes it upon himself to ratify this covenant, even if the other party is not participating. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So it's night now. You can imagine how brilliantly the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch would illuminate that dark landscape and illuminate the carcasses and the blood. Smoking fire pot, the burning torch, these are symbols. Symbols of things to come. Symbols of God's plan. Symbols of, for God himself. And these symbols are Abram's assurance that God will surely fulfill his covenant promises. This is how God assures it. And one thing is certain. This is a peculiar ceremony. Again, Abram's lying on the ground. He is asleep. He couldn't walk through those pieces if he tried. God put him to sleep. That is a critical detail. Because God is Jehovah Magan, and God is shielding Abram. There are no terms in this for Abram to meet. He hasn't made a promise, so he has no requirement. There's nothing for him to fulfill. Instead, God will fulfill his promises to Abram, and he calls a curse upon himself. God calls a curse upon himself if his promises do not come to pass. If what he says doesn't happen. Do you hear that? God of the universe promises Abram that he will spill his blood and he will rend his body in order to secure a covenant for Abram. All Abram has to do is trust it. Is believe it. Is rest. And as surely as God will bear that penalty, he secures the terms of the covenant. Verse 18 says, On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, land, the river Euphrates. And then he lists ten different nations that occupy that territory. There's a map I want you to see. I'm not going to elaborate too much on these land boundaries. That is a whole deep dive in and of itself. And there's great argument about exactly where those boundaries are. But I think this map has a fair representation. 
But know that even during the reign of King Solomon, at the height of Israel's expansion, they didn't even come close to filling all that was promised to them. And there are other places where the land is promised that's even bigger than this. It's important to note when talking about the land, as as God promises the land to Abram, God describes the land in two ways, geographically and ethnographically. The promised land is, and it will forever be, marked by its rivers and its mountains and its trees. And it is marked by the people groups that need to be subdued. The implication of this resounds through Scripture. More on this in a bit. Layer two, the Exodus. We're going to pass over the text a second time. And uncover the Exodus. So there's the obvious element. Of course, God promised, made promises that were direct references to, Abra, uh, to the enslavement of Abram's offspring and their later Exodus. And even, even hints at Mount Sinai of the giving of the law and the entrance into the promised land. But the whole, the whole covenant ceremony has all kinds of symbols of the things to come. Of things that relate to the Exodus. And, and there are more symbols than I have time to discuss. But when Abram puts... When God puts Abram to sleep, verse 12, it says that a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What is that? Except another symbol, symbolic act, or a thing that had symbolic meaning. A symbol of the affliction that Abram's offspring would face in Egypt. They faced a dreadful enslavement. They faced the darkness of living under a king of idolaters. But God, who rescues them, the offspring, from that darkness and that dreadfulness, secures their promise. He leads them out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. A pillar of cloud symbolized in a smoking fire pot. A pillar of fire symbolized in a flaming torch. And God passed through the animal halves as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He passes through, symbolizing that he will shield his people from covenant curses, right? Well, during the Exodus, God leads out Israel, and he literally shields them from the oncoming Egyptian army that would destroy Israel. And then he cuts the water in half, and he moves Israel through the Red Sea to save them. And then from Mount Sinai, God delivers his law to Israel. And when he does deliver his law, we see that within it, the heifer, the goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon, all of these become animals of sacrificial worship. Each one of those animals remembers how God shields his people from the curse. And of course, let's not forget that God led his people out of Egypt to take possession of the promised land, the very land that's being promised to Abram here in this text. Even though, as it turned out, that that was a process, process extending beyond the lifetime of any individual. So we see it again and again in the journey of Abram. The history of Israel is reflected in Abram's life, this covenant being no exception. Israel's enslavement, exodus, receiving of the law, entrance into the promised land, 
all of it is foreshadowed in verses 7 to 21. But we go deeper to this far greater foreshadowing, and I, I bet you can already see what it is. The Abrahamic covenant ratified here is, the ultimate, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus. Every promise that God makes in his covenant, in this covenant ceremony, every one of them is finally, completely fulfilled in and through Jesus. All of them. Land, descendants, righteousness, protection, all of them fulfilled in and through Jesus. There are a multitude of events in Jesus' life that reenact Abram's journey, reenact Israel's journey. I'm not going to spend time on them, but there is this one single, clear, obvious way that Jesus bursts out of this ceremony. You must be seeing it. But before we get into that, let's talk about why he did it. The covenant was broken. This covenant, this covenant was broken. Not not because of God. He upheld all of his promises perfectly and continues to uphold him. Every word he has ever spoken, his righteousness has never been broken. The works of his hand are perfect in all ways. He does all things good. It is humanity that has failed, that has broken this covenant. I hope that you're saying right now, what do you mean? How is that possible? Abram didn't make any promises. Abram didn't walk through the pieces. And even if he did, what does Abram have to do with me? Why would he stand as a representative of me? Good questions. And, And how could the covenant curses come to me when I had nothing to do with this? Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. You put yourself there. You walked through those pieces. Anytime you say, by word or by action, that your plans are better than God's plans, you walk between the parts. If you trust in your achievements, and your ability to uphold righteousness, and your ability to create a paradise, you walk between the parts. You're liable. Self-righteousness is unbelievably dangerous because it seeks to remove God from his rightful position and put you there. Self-righteousness puts man where God belongs. And if we want to be in the position of God, then that means that we put ourselves in the position of bearing the covenant curses. So if ever we break covenant, if ever our righteousness fails, if ever we are not able to create a paradise, then we, like those eviscerated animals, 
receive the curse. And devastatingly, we are all guilty of self-righteousness, probably this morning, maybe even right now, and we deserve death. But while our self-righteousness condemns us and it inserts ourselves where we were never meant to be, God still upholds his end of the covenant. He takes the curse of covenant failure as he promised. And the word became flesh so that his flesh could be rent so that he could eternally secure the covenant blessings promised to the offspring of Abram. The word became flesh, so the flesh could be rent. Galatians 3, 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. Through faith. Christ took our curse with his, to cover us with his righteousness. And all of that comes to us by faith. Just as righteousness came to Abram by faith. We believe that we are saved from covenant curses to only receive now the covenant blessings. That's what's given to us in and through Christ. Now everybody every person who trusts in Jesus, to have done this on our behalf. The promised land has become something far greater than ten nations. Something much bigger than geographic boundaries and bloodlines. For one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There are no boundaries or bloodlines anymore. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Yes, that's what we saw in Genesis 14, that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And when Christ comes, having risen from the dead, about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, to the ends of the earth, discipling all nations. You see that the covenant of Christ is for all nations on the whole earth. The promise is not constrained by boundaries or bloodlines, but it flows everywhere like rivers of living water, paradise, not just restored, but completed, consummated, filling all things in all ways, like we read in Ephesians chapter 3. Those glories are all foreshadowed in the Abrahamic covenant and through the Exodus. It was then, and it, was always, it will always be about faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Transformative scriptures that flow to us through scripture alone. Faith alone. Brothers and sisters, what then must we do? What do you do? 
trust in Christ. He secured your covenant. You need not produce righteousness in order to please him. You produce righteousness because you have been filled with him. And it is his life flowing out of your life. His body and his blood was spilled and rent that yours need not be. So trust him, wait on him, content yourselves with his perfect timing and fight against this self-righteousness that rears its ugly head all the time. And I can tell you truly that self-righteousness is my constant companion. And I hate it. I want to kill it. And I'm sure you know what I mean. Let's all pray for one another. And encourage one another to lift up our eyes off of ourselves and place them on Christ. Our Christ who is Jehovah Magan, our covenant secure, our curse taker. So this is very spur of the moment. But we're going to do something different. I'd like you to turn to the people near you, family or not, and pray with them right now. Encourage, don't ask for each other's prayer requests. Simply pray for one another that we would see Christ, that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and see Christ waiting on him, trusting in him, having faith in him. So let's do this for the next five minutes or so and perhaps the worship team could musically play I Will Wait For You. All right. I'm going to pray after about five minutes to close this time. left the question hang in sermon. What was Abram promised? Romans 4, verse 13, and then verses 25 through, 23 through 25. For the promise to Abram, Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. But the words, but the words it was counted to him we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You are the righteous ones who shall inherit the world. Won't you walk in that promise? Be blessed.